Welcome, everybody. This is the last session, I believe, before lunch. So it's not an enviable session to be in, because the only thing between us and a gentle conversation and your meal is the following topic. The guiding framework for implementation in equities, which I am very grateful to be uh, chairing today. We're going to be talking a lot about this idea of how do you bring certain kind of investment philosophies or certain investment ideas, which are probably at the kind of a um, uh, ozone la layer of, of the stratosphere, if you will, very high level stuff, down to something that's a lot more implementable, a lot more kind of uh, understandable. And for me, uh, this is going to be a great privilege, and I'm joined by three wonderful thought leaders in this space who we've had a chance to have a chat beforehand, and I can see this is going to be quite interesting, quite firing. So James Gunn, immediately to my left from Frontier, Jessica Malville from Willis Charles Watson, and Michael Zwanenberg, I did almost go for it, but I... <laughs> reverted back to the English version from Robico. Um, so thank you very much. Before we begin, we're going to start with poll questions. So we've got two poll questions for you that we have uh, identified. Uh, if the technical uh, bits allow us, then we'll kind of show it to you. There you are. So you need to go to Slido if you haven't already. I'm not sure how much you're using it. Um, and the first question arises, do you consider enhanced indexing as a credible alternative to passive? Okay, we just go with the flat out yes then. 60% say yes, that's uh, unequivocally so absolutely. Now question number two, do you have conviction in the value of active management in Australian equity? So that's a quite a spicy question for many of you. Some of you is quite a leading one. I'm guessing you have no choice in answering a certain way. Um, but for others, it should uh, be an interesting one. Don't forget, it's anonymous. Um, nobody will see you or know what you said. Well, absolutely. Yes, 75, 72, we'll take that as a winner. Okay, so we believe in active management in Australian equities, that's a good start. Had it been no, this conversation would have been quite different. Um, so it's good. So I, I think the topic here, broadly speaking, um, is really this idea that asset owners or any kind of um, family office, anybody else will have an idea of how the world works. They'll have a very high level concept about how investment works, how financial markets work, how risk and return, and perhaps some of the dynamics around things like cycles, macroeconomics, and things like we'll talk, talk about. Um, there's this other element, I suppose, of asset management, which we're going to be talking about, which is how to take those very high-level concepts from a kind of a stratosphere kind of level and kind of bring them into a particular portfolio. And whether we, we make certain kinds of choices as we do so, we try to stay true to the original concept of what we wanted to do. So I have a bunch of questions along this topic I'm going to throw to my panelists here. But as I've encouraged you to before, please jump in, agree, disagree, uh, you know, throw water at each other, whatever you like to do. Um, so I think, uh, Jessica, this is uh, the question for you first, um, for no obvious reason. Um, so if I was an asset owner um, or, or indeed a, a sort of a large enough family office, why, why would I consider creating an investment team in terms of what would be my... My, my go-to answer to, to say, absolutely, that's, that's the right reason for me to take my high-level concepts of the world and create an investment team. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Um, and, you know, fair question in, in this climate of, you know, asset owners, large getting larger and 
um, you know, regulatory scrutiny being sort of focused on, um, you know, the, the best of breed, so, so very, very topical. Um, but, you know, it kind of, it really sort of takes the, you know, the, the broader environment and really focuses on a, a very, very tiny part of the answer. So, you know, the way that, you know, in terms of a framework for thinking about this issue, um, you know, I think it's, it's, it's not rocket science, um, you know, very much, you know, asset owners and asset managers for that matter should be thinking about what their, what their mission is, what their purpose um, for, for being is, what they think their comparative advantage is, um, and scale is, you know, an obvious one that, you know, speaks to internalisation at a certain um, size, it's, it's almost a no-brainer to, to consider internalisation of, of some sort. Um, and then thinking about your beliefs as an organisation as to, you know, do you believe in um, inefficiencies in markets which would lead you to, you know, do you believe in, in active management? And then it sort of takes you down to, well, you know, how do you think you should be exploiting that? And then, you know, about five questions later it comes down to, do I look to outsource that activity or do I look to, to build a capability internally? Um, so, so that's kind of the, the sequence and the framework for thinking about it. Um, to the point about, well, how do you think about whether the answer is yes or no? Um, you know, you, you really do need to think about when you look at an external manager, you, you know, the, the classic things that you look at are business people process. Um, when you're looking to build a capability internally, that business people and process is all internalised. Um, so you need to think about, you know, the, the business case for building an internal team. And that's not just the, you know, the fixed stock pickers that you bring in-house, it's about all the infrastructure around that. And also, how do you think about motivating and incentivising that, that team? And then it has, you know, significant impacts on your operating model and, and process. So there's, there's a whole raft of, of questions about, you know, when you think about bringing that ecosystem of investment management that is typically externally done to in-house. That's how we would think about it. It's quite tricky with the implementation. I'll, go, I'll just bring it over to you in a minute, minute, James. But I suppose one question you'd have to kind of convince yourself of is that your high-level belief systems, uh, should they be represented in an investment team that you bring in? So if you believe the world works in a certain way, for example, you believe in macroeconomic cycles, interest rates, et cetera, mm. should that investment team that you bring in that can beat the Australian equity market, because we all believe that there's skill there, um, should, you know, should that team be somehow manifesting essentially your investment beliefs into, into how they do their job, or, or indeed do you kind of take your hands off that and go, well, that's your job, that's what you have to do. And my, my, my belief is that there is value in active management, but that's as far as I go, and the details of how that works essentially mm. is up to you. James, what do you think? Yeah, and I guess here in sort of potentially lies the challenge if, if, if that view changes and, 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 you know, there's a decision to reconfigure, um, you know, within the equities construct, for example. But um, like certainly to Jessica's point, a lot of it's around, you know, needing to build scalable solutions as you get to a particular size, size clearly. I mean, within Aussie equities, by the time you, you combine the required number of managers to some funds and that have, you know, got very strong, you know, growth, growth outlooks, you get such you know, redundancy in, in, your, in your positions. But the other thing um, that I guess that, that our clients, you know, um, communicate to us and we see ourselves is that, you know, they are, internalisation is building, you know, IP um, within the firm as well. So, you know, you're potentially better informing, you know, your cap capital markets teams, you're um, maybe better informing your own external manager um, selection processes as well. So, 
Um, you know, there's a, there's a few aspects and, and benefits there, you know, um, you know beyond the, the need to, for scale and cost and, and, and I guess the other common narratives. Yeah, I suppose, I suppose in that framework, it's not an implementation of your investment relief, it's an enhancement of your investment relief. It's a bit of a feedback loop in, in that argument. You would say, okay, I'm gonna build an investment team and they're gonna feed back into my understanding of the world, my ozone layer understanding of the world, yep. and then that's gonna enable me to either hire better teams or kind of do better things in that context. Yep. And we talked a lot about ESG today, and we started talking about ESG carbon and those kinds of things. And obviously that's a very topical thing for the Australian market, asset owners and so forth. Um, so do we think about, uh, in that context, ESG, carbon, and the integration of these ideas as part of an investment philosophy, an ozone layer investment philosophy that someone is um, then kind of bringing into the investment product or investment process? Or do we think about it as a client preference, where we kind of put two different kind of, I don't, I don't know, um, I suppose uh, foods or, or desserts on, on the menu, one, one with uh, sugar and one with cheese or something like that, just to kind of get everybody's taste on on board, or how, how have you seen it being kind of demonstrated? Uh, I will throw this over to you, James, okay. and then I'll go to Michael yep. after that. Um, look at Randomly uh, picking just. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the ESG side of things is important to our clients, it's important, it's important to us, it's important to our clients' members. Um, you know, we, we see, um, you know, the, the alignment long-term between, um, you know, return generation and stewardship, um, you know, as consultants, we have hundreds of managers coming through um, who understand in Australia, in effect, that you know ESG is a is a ticket to play, so to speak. So I guess our job, and again, I'm, I'm talking more the, the micro manager selection side of things, is is to be able to discern, you know, who's doing this more from a high level um, framework point of view as to who really is truly integrated in, in that perspective. So, um, you know, from a philosophy point of view, it's it's absolutely ingrained. Um, for ourselves and for our clients, but um, the process itself, um, you know, is, is much more involved. Um, you know, we often, <laughs> how, how a fund manager, again, for example, you know, thinks about these issues, I think probably reveals a fair bit, um, you know, as to how progressive they are in their thinking, um, how they think about risk and, and you know, their willingness to, um, to understand their, their companies at a deeper level as well. So. Because I would argue, based upon observations, and feel free to disagree with me, yep. is that we still see a, an eco ESG pooled fund, and we see a non ESG non eco pooled fund. Yeah. Or, or so we still sort of think about it as an industry, as a client preference. Yeah, on uh, an exclusionary basis. Yeah. So, yeah. so I, I suppose in that context, we talk about it as it was part of a default. Yeah. But at the moment, the way we treat it in terms of for the fiduciary duty and return generation is mm. still a client preference. It, mm. Discuss, is, am I, have I got it wrong? I, well, I know you said you were going to speak, but I'm no, 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 go, go, go. <laughs> um, interject there. I, I completely agree um, that you know it's it's increasingly becoming part of the conversation, um, and you know it has to date largely been driven by client preference, and and that you know may well be right. Um, I think that in the last couple of years there has been an increased urgency in focus on these issues. Probably, you know, I'm biased towards Australia, um, clearly, but, you know, if you think about it, um, you know, globally there have been a number of instances. So Jamie Dimon sort of stood up in the, the business roundtable mm. um, in August and, you know, basically he along with 200 CEOs in the US basically said, you know, we are now putting an end to this notion of, you know, pure focus on shareholder value and we are changing the focus to stakeholder value. So that is about working, you know, working to focus on clients, 
and the, the value that we bring to them. It's about focusing on our suppliers and dealing with them with integrity. It's about adding value to our employees and making sure we're actually developing them with you know, career paths, professional skills. Um, and then you know, somewhere down the list is shareholder value. So it's still important, but it's one of a number of considerations. So it's a broader focus to, so to, to what Sarah sort of said in an earlier session, that you know, the, the, the measurements and the metrics are there. It's about shifting the conversation and elevating the importance of those issues. And you know, I think that it, the reason for the focus in Australia is that you know, there's this concept of universal ownership. So this concept that you know, a number of asset owners around the world, um, and particularly in Australia, are large enough that their portfolios touch and have exposure to all markets and all economies. So you know, for, for the stock pickers out there that think that they're, you know, they're buying a company that is you know, well-placed well to, to generate outsized returns because they have pricing power over their suppliers and over their customers. If you put that in the universal owner's perspective, they have exposure to that customer and to that supplier. So, you know, in some other part of their portfolio. So for them, it's a zero-sum game and it's about elevating, um, you know, the return of the overall market. Um, so I, I think that it's, it's one thing to be client-led, but I think that, you know, as, as consultants and as asset owners who collaborate with one another, as well as the asset managers that are part of that ecosystem, we have a, you know, a, an opportunity for, for leadership in, in that space. Yeah, thanks. I, can, I think I completely agree with that. The, the, I mean, what I always find unique about sustainability is that kind of every client has its own unique ob objectives, right? Kind of which is different from financial objectives where, well, mostly it's uh, more is better, whereas that sustainability is really linked to the norms and values of the client. So, from that perspective, as an asset manager, we're kind of really, a large part will indeed be client-led. It means kind of you need a lot of different building blocks being able to meet those objectives of that particular client. Uh, that's on the one hand, but at the same time, indeed, you also take the kind of your own view and the kind of the stakeholder value of the kind of asset manager into account. And what you also need to take into account that there's, I mean, we're talking about uh, sustainability, but it's also the link with financials. Um, so even from a, I mean, I'm a quant portfolio manager, and uh, for us, it's actually, we also see parts of sustainability that can actually help us improve the risk and return of the portfolios, especially within the quality factor. So that's kind of it, kind of that all comes together in that way. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna pick you up on that point, but I'll make a quick cheeky remark, and then I'm gonna pick you up on that point. But my cheeky remark is, I suppose, I suppose if we agreed that we're universal owners as our investment principle, investment philosophy, and then we have something like the Royal Commission, and it uh, you know, exposes a lot of kind of behaviors that we didn't like, for example, in certain financial institutions. They are the majority part of our index that we manage to. Is did we see significant divestment from those benchmarks, from those companies across you know, the, the plethora of universal owners? So, so there's any kind of interesting questions that if, if you are, I suppose, setting that yourself as the investment process, we'll talk about benchmark in a minute, but there's this kind of an interesting question around how then that actually manifests itself through through this framework that you mentioned mm -hmm. into actual trading decisions. Yeah. And the fact that you are able to at that moment go, you know what, I, I'm going to 
uh, remove that stock or remove that position from my portfolio, even if it's a seven, eight percent of, of my benchmark, it causes mm -hmm. you know a lot of tracking error to my peers and so forth. There's a real cost to that decision. Yeah. And I get the sense that when there's a cost to the decision is really when there's a weight to that uh, problem. And so we're gonna talk straight about that because you know quant managers are great at quantifying things, including cost of decision or benefits sometimes as it were. Um, so with Rubico, I'm kind of interested because we, we talk about cycles, we talk about universal ownership, we talk about conceptual ideas about how we should manage money. And then there's this other language of asset management which talks about factors investing and tracking or benchmarking and so forth. And I often find that there's some overlap, but essentially they're still quite in almost like different areas of the world. And, and how, how do you build a bridge from one to the other? What does that bridge even look like? Well, what parts are translatable and what, what are not? Michael. Oh, thanks. So, Michael, thanks. <laughs> so the, the, I think this, the starting point is very much is to have that conversation with the client, right? Really understand what we're talking about. I mean, you maybe linking it back to the first story kind of on internalization or, or, or keeping things external. I mean, in my view, kind of as long as an asset manager has very clear views on what a client is trying to achieve, um, and that could be indeed in what their views are on this, what we're, where we're in the cycle or on sustainability, uh, you, as long as can, you can almost like kind of quantify what you're what you're looking for, uh, kind of that's kind of a great input for a asset manager. Um, and in terms of kind of linking, kind of you know your views on, on, on cycles, for example, those can indeed also be linked to, to factors. Um, I, can, I think a very uh, topical one is value, where we've seen kind of with these low interest rates that kind of value is really having a, a challenge. Um, so you can, you, can, you, can make that, you can make that link. Um, at the same time, that is kind of, it is, it is up to kind of a client to indicate what they're, what they're looking for. And then we'll kind of translate that into a investment strategy kind of that links to that. Um, uh, although kind of on that kind of, you know, you, one of the topics that also comes up then is factor timing. Um, and, and that uh, kind of we find actually something which is, we're trying to very, very much stay away from that uh, because it's kind of a very low breath decision. So, um, and if you, if you get it wrong, it's a very risky thing to get wrong. And the great things about factors is they're actually very much diversifying. So, you know, if value is not, like value has been actually doing very well this month, whereas kind of momentum is actually being detracting. You know, actually, the, the earlier this year it was exactly the other way around. So these combining those factors is kind of a great way of kind of limiting your, uh, your drawdown. But I, I think we touched on this point as well. This is, there's a question of horizon here where we touched on a couple of sessions ago if you're thinking about factors as being linked to this sort of a stratosphere concept of how financial markets work, then assumingly also they're very long-term yeah, exactly. investments, in which case what they did last month is not really pertinent to the conversation. It's what they're gonna do in the next 30 years that perhaps is more important. And as we talked about before, that means I can buy and sell stocks, is that right? I mean, I don't have to hold any stock for more than a minute, essentially, as long as I have my factor exposure. That's really my long-term anchor, is it? Exactly. Yeah. So the long-term anchor is indeed it's not a buy and hold situation. It's kind of it's well, buy and hold in factors, but indeed the stocks which are value stocks now, uh, you know, might be different stocks in a year time, and especially for momentum, that can change actually quite uh, quite frequently. Um, so the 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 long-term anchor, I think it's it's a great analogy. Kind of the long-term anchor is in it, those factors, uh, but your actual portfolio, if you drill down to the actual stocks. That, that will change the time. Yeah. And, and I think this is a subtle translation from what we see as a stratospheric kind of comment about I like to buy cheap things 
to how, how, she, how do you actually do that in a portfolio? Either you buy a company, hold it for 10 years, hold a Microsoft for the next 10 years, I'd like to see anybody sort of think about how that would look, versus I hold value factor for 10 years and, and the kind of differences. So these are kind of subtle. But I mean, let me take you back again to, to James and Jessica here, because I think one of the kind of questions we were talking about before is whether these ideals of an asset owner's uh, whether concepts, whether it's um, uh, premier that they believe or the cycle, should they be embedded in the benchmarks, in the strategic asset allocation benchmarks that they basically run? And then they choose a couple of managers to kind of beat those benchmarks. But what the managers do essentially is nothing to do with the investment philosophy of the asset owner. Or should they kind of have very generic benchmarks as they do today, to be fair, and basically embed this idea of how the active uh, returns are formed, whether through that true factor timing or better portfolio construction, active risk that, that um, you know, active managers in, in equities, for example, Australian equities can take. And how do you think about where the, um, the information edge, as you mentioned very eloquently, this idea of comparative advantage of the asset owner or the family office should be embedded? Should they be embedded in the benchmarking or they should be embedded in the actual investment philosophy and process of the manager? James? Okay. Um, Easy question for you. Yeah. <laughs> um, look, I think, you know, we'd be of the view that, you know, when we're building um, um, equity um, configurations or portfolios, um, it comes back to, to, to Jessica's remark about, you know, um, well, you know, the comparative advantages of different size asset owners and, um, you know, whether you're combining, um, you know, various pillars of passive um, factor um, and active. Um, you know, it does depend on, on, on where you sit within that spectrum. You know, for example, um, you know, um, I'm a large asset manager, uh, I can, um, um, I'm a large asset owner, I can access maybe active manager at, at lower fee, fee tiers, so I might have, you know, um, a broader exposure to, to broad cap equities. Um, if I'm a smaller asset owner, I might be wanting to exploit my, um, um, you know, my ability to get into more capacity constrained areas and therefore lower my fees from that around, around passive. But um, I think, you know, wherever you sit within that realm, if, if, if you're using factor investing, you know, to, to your point, Michael, you have to believe in that, in, in the premier there. And, um, you know, asset owners are very willing to pay for skill where they can find it, but you've now got this avenue that is, um, um, able to create, you know, scalable, you know, efficient, cost-effective, um, um, you know, excess returns as well. So, um, you know, I think, again, it comes, it comes down to a combination of these building blocks and, um, and, and we sort of have these, these three pillars now. To, to add to that, um, you know, completely agree with James. Um, you know, if you think about... Um, you know, the levels of decisions that an asset owner makes, you know, from that, that sort of ozone layer and, and down to something that's more sort of 10,000 feet. Um, you know, what they're essentially doing is, you know, establishing how much risk they want to take in their portfolio through, typically expressed through an SAA. Um, and then, you know, the next layer of decision making is around, well, you know, once I've got my equity portfolio, Am I diversifying away from, you know, your developed market standard exposure? Do I go into emerging markets? Do I do Australian as a, Aussie equities as a carve out? And all the, the different sort of, um, you know, shapes and, and sizes within that. 
Um, and then the next layer down is, you know, there's an element around, is it done through active management? Can I get that efficiently and effectively through a, a factor exposure? Is it best done through, through passive um, effectively? And then there's, you know, further decisions around, you know, is that done through a quantitative exposure versus fundamental? Um, so that's kind of the layer of thinking, but, you know, I guess it ultimately comes out to, you need a, a measure of success or otherwise, and so you, you typically come back to a benchmark, mm. um, but, you know, it, it's important to realise that there's a number of different decisions that are being made across the organisation. Michael, did you want to add anything? Yeah, well, I think kind of the challenge of, um, kind of if you set very kind of specific benchmarks, so let's take kind of the example you gave, like a value benchmark, right, kind of MCI value, right, it clearly indicates you have a belief in value, I think that's a good thing, um, but if you start kind of providing that as a benchmark to an asset manager, kind of you're fixed to kind of that definition of value, uh, which could be a good one, uh, but it does kind of very much uh, put you in a very small, kind of small area that, that you can deviate from. So if that's kind of, if you kind of want to go for passive tracking that index, I think that's a great approach. If you're looking more for active management, then kind of that really limits an asset manager, whether it's internal or external, uh, too much. And you should really kind of start with a more broader benchmark like the MSCI world or the MSCI emerging markets. A lot of this stuff basically goes down to whether you think factors are forces of nature or whether there's kind of active uh, discipline or research that makes one factor definition better than another and that's a meaningful difference to, to employ a manager of that way. And so, I mean, you've already touched on this notion of scale and how kind of scale impacts this conversation and this decisions. And I find it interesting, the question, by the way, I, I do wonder how many people would have agreed with the statement that there is value to Australian active management at 75 or $100 billion of AUM versus at $2 billion of AUM. It's a very different type of conversation. And, and I think it kind of leads you down a particular road. But let me take that similar question that we discussed and maybe put a little bit of a twist on it just to surprise you at the end, um, which is if you believe that interest rates are low, and forward returns are low, or lower than they are, which we are led to believe by all accounts by major figures coming out and warning of this thing going forward, then I suppose the question is, are you then forced to revisit your framework and go, well, I didn't really believe in active management, but I, I, I best because, well, I need to make returns somehow. Turns out equity is only going to make me 4 or 5% over the next 10 years, and I need to make 8 or 9 or whatever my target might look like. Does that mean that one goes back and reconsiders the sources of return and goes deeper searching into manager alpha or considers new types of products, new types of factors, those kinds of ideas as a kind of being forced into that decision or do you kind of stand back and go, no, 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 I'm a long-term horizon investor. So right now the world is looking a bit you know, shaky, but it'll be fine in 10, 15 years. Anybody, James, I'm only yeah. looking at you, but I'm not going to really have to be um, James. Yeah, look, you know, we're pretty reluctant to jump into that factor zoo, you know, as, as you know, in terms of the, the breadth of what is promised within a broader range of, you know, the commonly recognised persistent, persuasive, you know, um, intuitive sort of factors. But equally, you know, if, if, if those are real, well recognised over time, then, you know, th they themselves by definition have the potential um, to decay. But I guess that your question, Michael, comes down to, you know, what, what are your capital market, you know, assumptions as well, clearly, if, if you do have that view that returns are lower. But from a from an active, passive sort of argument, I think, you know, we have, a, our clients have a risk budget, which they will uh, deploy uh, in a non-uniform way, based on markets that are, you know, a combination of efficient and inefficient. And again, it's, it's our job, I guess, 
uh, and their job to keep retesting you know our, our belief in, in in the level of um, you know active opportunity in in various markets at different scale points um, and and that's probably a key part of, of how we sort of think about that issue completely agree there that um, you know around the the the, the, the opportunity set moving. I don't think it means that you readdress or go back to um, your your framework. I think your framework should be permissive enough, um, and your belief framework, um, you know, has you know, I guess beliefs are ultimately things that are unprovable and you know help you address a certain amount of uncertainty. So you you either believe in the efficiency of markets or you don't. You believe you have an ability to exploit that efficiency or you don't, or you know, if you don't, you think you can um, build a capability to exploit that. Um, so a lot of those beliefs should stand the test of time. Um, but I think to, to what James was saying, I think the expression of that framework should evolve through time. Um, it should allow you to capture opportunities as they arise, thrown up by markets, dislocations, etc. Um, but also needs to be per permissive enough to manage the risks that a certain environment throws up, you know, low interest rate environment, the challenge of meeting your, um, you know, return objectives, um, you know, your ability to, to sort of provide retirement adequacy to your members if that's your mission. Um, so it should be permissive enough to, to sort of adapt to address those, those objectives. Nothing to add there, and I <laughs> Well covered. Um, we need a lot more disagreement here, clearly, which we're not getting, unfortunately, but that's fine. Um, so we have 11 minutes left of this session, and normally at this point we have the, Q, uh, the questions from the audience and all the online service. I'm going to look to Alex informatively, um, but basically at this point, uh, I'm going to throw it maybe open to the floor. Uh, does anybody have any questions? All right, well, if everyone's very polite, that's awesome. That means I get to ask you more questions. <laughs> I'm sure that you're, you might not be looking forward to it, but that's fine. Um, but I suppose, you know, we, we, we touched on this idea of, um, you know, so much stuff about implementation and the risk budgets and, and so forth. Um, let me ask you a question about this idea of risk budgeting for a moment. Um, so you mentioned, I think both of you mentioned this notion that you have um, sort of a, a risk budget and then you kind of allocate to that risk budget through, through this idea of kind of what am I good at? How, how does a manager or how does an asset owner understand or quantify where they think that they're good at or the comparative advantage? Because that's a little bit what my question was leading to in the previous case, mm. which was, I, you know, I have to put in a lot of effort for me to go out and research and find a good manager, or indeed you do, and that takes effort and time and cost mm. to do that, right? So mm. I'll do that if there's a desperate need for it mm. or if I think I have a comparative advantage. But how do I know where my comparative advantages are when it comes to understanding whether I should be running, let's say, for example, a factor-based passive portfolio or an active you know, one that has lots of manager selection or an ESG carbon one because I think I've got an advantage there or beliefs that, as you mentioned, that is driving me that direction. What are the tools that are available for me to understand you know, where my skill set lies, especially with the long-term nature of this problem? Jessica, so I, um, you can do it. Just as you were talking there, I was sort of thinking about, um, well, a, a good consultant could help you. Um, really? <laughs> but, um, you know, I guess it, it does sort of speak to, you know, understanding, you know, comparative advantage by definition is understanding where you stand relative to your, your peers or who you're comp competing against. And, um, you know, having an understanding of, you know, whether you think you are better, whether you can be be better, whether you should just 
you know, leave that and move on to another area. So it does require um, an awareness of the, the ecosystem. Um, and, you know, there has been this increasing focus, I think, lately around, well, lately, over the last sort of 10 or 15 years, the, the focus on um, peer relative performance and understanding what your peers are doing. And, you know, it, it does feel like there's an increasing sense that, you know, the, the super funds in Australia, Australia look over their shoulder at what, you know, what the next fund is doing, what Aussie Super is doing. Um, and, you know, those, I, I would argue that that's not necessarily a constructive way of, of sort of establishing that. I th but I think that there is something to um, understanding what your peers are doing, engaging with your peers to, to understand, um, you know, why they've done something a certain way, um, what led them down the path of, um, creating a, an, an advantage in a certain area. It's important to remember that comparative advantage is, you know, it can be structural or it can be a developed advantage. Um, you know, very few advantages are truly structural. Most of them are, you know, advantages or, or capabilities that have built, been built up through time. So understanding the journey that others have taken to, um, to developing an advantage is, is really important to sort of understanding, well, does that resonate? Does that work for my organisation? Um, does that work for, you know, the member base or the, the stakeholder base that I'm, I'm sort of working towards? Um, so that, that's kind of how I, I sort of think about, you know, what's a constructive approach to peer awareness and, and you know, I guess comparing yourself to peers. It's not about sort of the short-term performance focus and, and asset allocation changes. It's about sort of understanding the journey that others have gone on um, to sort of get to that, that place where they, they, you know, arguably do have an advantage in a certain area. Do you think it's worthwhile building that capability? If you were a super fund today, mm -hmm. you had the choice of building out internal investment capability, and as James made the point, that would feed back into your IP and your understanding of the world. Yeah. Does that mean that, that the journey that this industry is on, essentially, mm -hmm. is to build that competitive advantage in over one another over the next five years, or perhaps against global peers mm -hmm. over the next five years? And by hiring investment talent inside, that's really what they're doing. They're not just generating asset performance, or they're not mm -hmm. trying to generate a little bit of slightly lower fees on the product, essentially. What they're trying to do is establish themselves as competitive advantage to yeah. us. I think um, it's, it's interesting because we were talking earlier about, um, you know, the dynamics in the industry and, you know, I guess this, um, you know, tension, if you would, between um, super funds and, um, you know, the asset managers. So, you know, I guess the challenge with internalisation is that asset managers are, you know, effectively losing out on, you know, their, their client base is starting to, to shrink. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I guess, the, you know, part of the argument for internalising, aside from bringing up scale, you know, the, the IP that sits within the organisation, there is a, a cost focus. Um, and so that, that's kind of been the part of the, the case to justify it. But then what we've also seen, you know, very much in recent years is that there has been this compression of fees that asset managers are, um, you know, able to, to charge, willing to charge. Um, you know, there suddenly the bargaining power of the, the customers being the asset owners has, has really sort of shifted. And so, you know, I guess it's, it is this t ongoing tension in that, you know, if you say, you know, say your average cost of an equity portfolio was 50 basis points five years ago and, and it's 30 basis points today, how does that impact the business case for building an internal capability? And then when you sort of juxtapose that against the, the alpha proposition um, of, you know, what 
what kind of quality of investment professional do you, can you bring in-house and what alpha can they generate? I guess it's, a, it's an ongoing sort of tension, I would say. And maybe kind of also kind of I'm, I'm just thinking kind of also uh, kind of my home market, which is the Netherlands, uh, where you see that kind of especially a lot of pension funds actually brought asset management back in-house um, over the last decades or so, and now you actually see the opposite effect. Now that's that's in part to what you're indicating, kind of it's this compression of fees where it makes again uh, attractive to uh, to externalize the money, but it's also linked to um, more on the kind of kind of increased ability to kind of tailor and, and customize mandates. And that's especially on the sustainability side where, you know, uh, I think the Netherlands kind of actually in line with Australia is quite, quite far advanced and uh, where a lot of pension funds were actually doing, managing funds internally because, well, what, you know, their beliefs could not be implemented or not kind of implemented in a scalable way by kind of asset managers. And, and that really has changed through time, um, definitely kind of, Kind of in my own case, kind of on the quantitative side, where you see that there's this huge opportunity for tailor tailoring and customization, which kind of really opens up a lot of opportunities for um, clients. And I'm also guessing, I mean, it's nice that you mentioned quant, because, well, I like quant, but also because <laughs> there's a lot of changes that happen in that space over the last even five years. That means that if you're an internal team, you're just not necessarily up to date on the technologies and the availability of data and everything else that happens in that space. So it does feel like you, you don't see these kinds of legacy problems until five, ten years into the process, mm -hmm. right? Where you've had a team for five or ten years and they've been doing similar things for that amount of time. And this goes back to this idea that if we have zero negative interest rates and suddenly we start to think, right, let's create very active strategies, benchmark agnostic ones, so we can really do three, four percent plus the benchmark. I think in that scenario you might need a very different team to execute that than the one that you've put in place to manage enhanced equity. Uh, essentially at 50 basis points tracking error. But uh, so I'm gonna challenge you, Michael, because I, I like to challenge you in the last minute and then give you no opportunity at all to uh, come back. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> is, I, I suppose with the scale that you see Australia growing to, so you've got some of the very big funds and they're looking to perhaps double assets in the next three to five years simply through organic growth. And this is all kind of mm -hmm. conditional market steady as she goes. Um, does that mean that, that essentially implementation equities for very large, scalable, scale-hungry investment processes necessitate kind of quant factor investing and that type of approach, and in which case, I suppose the question is, do you still think there'll, there'll be returns in that space, or do you think that'll still be a good idea if, if that wall of money moves into that area? Well, it's, I, I think there's, there's it's easier to get skill kind of in more kind of quant, but then kind of lower tracking error uh, type of products, uh, where, well, by definition, the possibilities for alpha is, of course, lower than in, uh, in, in, in fundamental, very active uh, portfolios. Uh, but it is kind of the, the approach where you can you know, explicitly take into account that skill, take into account the transaction costs and turnover that's kind of linked to that. So I think it's, it is, it, it's definitely kind of a beneficial way and it's sort of, it is an approach for uh, large scale kind of company, pension or uh, supers kind of with, with um, kind of a large scale and that that kind of do still want to kind of uh, uh, stay away from passive or looking for an alternative to passive. Um, and in that case, kind of a quant is an ideal approach. Which we know that many people in the room will agree with according to the survey. Uh, yes, we were I was, uh, we're on the same 61 percent. I was uh, <laughs> on, on that very positive note. Uh, please thank our panelists today. Uh, thank you very much, Mike. And